So first up tonight, opening our show, you're going to be like this one. Sally Fox is going to talk to you about how I dump denial. 60 is not the new 40. Please welcome Sally to the stage. How many of you, how many of you have ever been tempted to fudge your age? Just even a little bit at any age? Well, I want to tell you about the story of the aging I grew up with. It went like this. When you're young, you're vital and energetic, and you rush up the mountain of success where you peak at 40. And then after it, there's this big decline, which is why people want to stay 40. And then you look at the media and the entertainment industry, and everybody has to be young. So if you're an actress and you're in Hollywood, you better get ready to cut your face or fix it in order to be able to have work at all. Unless you're someone who dares not to fix herself, which made me so happy that Frances McDormand won the Academy Award with wrinkles. <laughs> because there's a whole industry out there telling you you shouldn't be older or look older. And it's big. It has age-defying, age-denying, anti-aging everythings. And you want to guess how big that industry is? $250 billion, which is more than many countries in the world produce every year. So it's not about the products. You know, I'm no purist. I just don't want anybody telling me that I shouldn't be the age that I am. Because ageism is rampant out there. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But it's a strange disease, as all the isms are. If you're white and you're racist, you're never going to be black. But if you're young and you're ageist, you're probably going to be old. <laughs> ageism is like discriminating against the future you. So as I approached 60, I needed some help. And I went to a woman who does Chinese face reading and numerology, and I poured out my heart to her. And I said, Jean, I'm 60, but I don't want to retire. I feel like I've just found my calling in life. I want to perform, and I want to write, and I want to tell stories. And she looked at my numbers and said, you got it. You've got to do that. So I was excited until reality hit. And I thought, Sally, you don't have a BFA. You don't have a writing degree. You weren't an actress in college. You're 40 years too late. And then she told me something that would change my life. She said, Sally, when you were 40, you couldn't have done it. You can only do it because you're 60. Because in the Chinese system, the decade is one of expansion. So I began to do some research to figure out what actually gets better after 60. And I discovered that even your brain gets better. For example, your amygdala, which is that pesky epicenter of your rabid emotion that can outbreak at any moment, calms down a bit. 
And even though a lot of us, self-included, are going to lose a lot of words that are at the tip of our tongue, our vocabularies actually keep increasing. And in today's crazy, polarized world, we're the ones whose brains can handle complexity and big picture thinking. But it gets even better, because I talked to some of my older friends, and they gave me one key to their success, happiness, and creativity at their age. They said to me, we no longer have to prove anything to anybody. We get to be who we really are. So tonight, I challenge you. We're going to say a brief phrase that will eliminate denial from your life forever. It goes like this. I'm proud to be. And then we shout our ages. So ready? With me. I'm proud to be 66. Next up, R. Monica Houston, R. You'll get why I'm saying R in a second. A lot of high fives going on. It's good. Pace yourselves. Pace yourselves. That was amazing. We got a lot of talks ahead. Next up, R. Why we all still talk like pirates. Please welcome Monica Houston to the stage. By and large, modern English comes from a garble of different cultures. So because the British Isles are islands, it makes sense that traditionally they've been inhabited by seafarers and pirates. These words are such mainstays in English that it's probable you've used some of them today. All set? I'll get underway with some straightforward words and phrases. <laughs> All right. So because sailing was a lot of drudgery, a lot of our words for talking about work come from sailing. Maybe you wish your boss would give you some leeway, which is the ability of a boat to maneuver while sailing downwind. Or perhaps you need a lay day. Or you need the opposite to get cracking and forge ahead. And I know that every single one of you has made a purchase. To make purchase, literally means to seize goods by robbery or pillage. <laughs> so think of that the next time you're filling out a PO. <laughs> All right, and if you want a reckoning of how many nautical terms I'm using, I will have a slide at the end, but be sure to take them with a grain of salt. <laughs> You'll have to debunk them yourselves. So, to go off on a different tack, how many of you have ever been seasick? If you have been, you'll know why a lot of our words for feeling blue come from sailing. So down in the doldrums, the doldrums are a part of the ocean near the equator where the southeast trade winds meet the northeast trade winds, causing a lull where many ships become becalmed, which is very frustrating when you're trying to get somewhere. Meaning the same thing, but being uh, something different in nautical terms under the weather, you should probably batten down the hatches. <laughs> so feeling cranky and messy conditions in close quarters often led to some drama on board a ship. Maybe you know somebody who is aloof, which comes from a Middle Dutch word meaning to windward, 
if a ship sails to windward, they are leaving the other ships in their wake. Or perhaps you've been snubbed. To snub a line is to wrap it around a cleat or a block, preventing it from running freely. Hopefully that didn't take the wind out of your sails. <laughs> now there were perks to being a sailor. Three square meals a day, a ration of grog, which was rum mixed with water to sanitize it. So, <laughs> sanitize the rum. If you're groggy, you probably had too much rum to grog to drink. Or maybe you're footloose or a drifter or three sheets to the wind. These are all words for being drunk that come from sailing. <laughs> now, to go off on a different tack again, how about these two seemingly unrelated homonyms, fast and fasten? If you make fast a line, you tighten your sails, you can go faster. Okay, now, pipe down, all you linguists out there. Before you sound off on me, I'm overreaching and I may have missed the mark. <laughs> uh, that is pure speculation, so if you give me some slack, I promise to toe the line and keep everything above board from now on. So to carry on, this one is also somewhat speculative. Sailing from England to India, it was very hot in the Suez Canal, so the port side of the boat was cooler. And on the way home, the inverse was true, of course. So a posh berth was more expensive. Now, the gun deck on a boat was the most private part of a boat. A son of a gun was probably conceived there. <laughs> But you had to be careful not to get caught or you might let the cat out of the bag. If there was room to swing a cat. The cat of nine tails, of course, that is. Are you guys taken aback by how many nautical words you use every day come from sailing? I've plumbed the depths, but this is not even half the words that I logged. <laughs> so hopefully this puts a new slant on things. And if you keep a weather eye open, you can stay abreast of all the nautical words that you use in everyday life. Thank you. That was awesome. So are you ready to set sail for the next talk? <laughs> so next up, Rob Eichmann is gonna talk about how Slack saved my life. Please welcome Rob to the stage. <clears throat> Two years ago, I woke up one morning and I couldn't walk without crying. Uh, I f suddenly found out uh, I had cancer by a tumor shattering my hip. And I'm not going to, yes, I'm playing the cancer card. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to give you a lifetime movie story. That, everyone's heard those stories. What I am going to talk about is, because I'm a hacker and I build tools, I'm gonna to talk about a tool I used in order to fight uh, this disease. So one of the first things I did after getting off the phone with uh, my best friend was I set up a Slack group. Um, Slack is this enterprise chat tool, but it has uh, some really nice organizational abilities, and I wound up pouring 
all of my cancer information into this tool and used it to keep track of everything. Meds, schedules, uh, what I needed, all of that stuff. And it acted as a lifeline for me. All of, um, all of my information was in there. One of the big problems with modern American medicine, there are many, but one of the worst is the fact you go in and you see a doctor who has potentially the information to save your life and you have 20 minutes with him. As a result, you have to go in and you have to be prepared. You have to be able to be knowledgeable and be able to get the answers that you need out of uh, this person. One of the things that shows up sometimes in media portrayals about cancer is there's this thing called white noise. When I, if I was to tell you you're going to be dead in six months, the next words out of my mouth are gonna be really hard for you to hear. As a result of that, um, I always brought a friend with me and I tried to bring the same friend, Carly, one of the Ignite organizers, to all of the important meetings. It, to me, it was important to have someone with me during this process who was smart, organized, and um, could help me keep track of things and take notes. Uh, these are some of the notes. I took notes, she took notes, and then we were able to both plan in Slack what we were gonna talk to the doctor about at each meeting, and afterwards talk about what we needed to do next. With uh, that ability and the ability to keep track of all of these notes, all of the images, all of this stuff, it's information overload. You literally get handed books of information, but it's not necessarily the information that you necessarily need. And so cancer really becomes an organizational information problem at the worst, at the worst moment. One of the things that you really need to do if, God forbid, this cancer happens to you or a family member is get all of the information that you can and do the research and try and know everything that uh, they will. Now, I'm not gonna try and give you some bogus information and tell you, hey, go, go do this, go smoke this, do that. That not necessarily is going to work but always try and get a second opinion, try and be as prepared as possible, and always be prepared to have jokes. Um, you, have to look at, you have to look at life with a sense of humor or you will go mad. Um, this, for example, is a picture of me and one of my friends literally chatting on Slack while I've got an IV in my arm. So, oh, oh, you, you, have to have, you have to have a sense of humor because if not, you're going to die crying. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot you, cancer is a hard problem, but potentially there are cures on the horizon. It, there's so much information and there's so many different variables. You have, to, you have to figure out what all of your options are and what your plans are and go into it with a clear head. Um, so 
Um, hopefully, uh, you're never going to have to use some of this information. But if you do, try and be as prepared as possible to handle uh, situations like this. Thank you, Rob. Good job. Thank you, Rob. And let's all wish Rob a healthy future, shall we? We're gonna tack in a different direction in terms of subject and context. Next up. Coco Crum is gonna to talk to us about how Silicon Valley desperately needs a sense of humor. Please welcome her to the stage. Thank you. So we have humor in common with the last one. How many of you work in technology? Woohoo! Yay! That's actually a lot of you. I would have expected a few more Bitcoin billionaires and people self-righteously quitting Facebook by this point, but I guess there are a few stragglers left who aren't there with us. Um, anyway, I have a few crypto kitties for sale after the event. Come, come talk to me. So this talk is about Silicon Valley. I'm still trying to figure out if it applies to Sil uh, Seattle. I, I grew up in San Francisco. I now live on Lopez Island. San Francisco is definitely Silicon Valley. Lopez Island is definitely not. Seattle, it's confusing to me. Maybe you guys can help me. I mean, you've got Patagonia, you've got bicycles, you've got VCs, you've got a shit ton of Californians, but you've also got rain and I'm pretty sure they've banned rain already. So you must know these people, right? Seattle's culture has changed. Oh my God, they want to one-up you. When I moved here, studios rented for only 4,000 a month. <laughs> They're actually saying something really simple. Let's translate. I gentrified this place first, asshole, okay? So this, this talk is about how we in technology don't have a sense of humor. It's, it's pretty embarrassing. We're, we're actually outsourcing our humor. We're paying big bucks to Hollywood to laugh at us. We're outsourcing self-mockery. And I'm gonna argue that this humor handicap is holding us back. If you look at the mega-rich of past eras, they built railroads and they funded universities. Our new bro riche fund apps and kids not to go to university. There, there's something wrong about this. And, and um, oh geez, I just prepared this talk two nights ago. They told me two nights ago. I missed the most important thing. It's not funny how unfunny we are. I'll come back to the thing I was gonna say before. But in any way, to combat this lack of humor, I launched the Silicon Valley magnet set. Do you guys remember those poetry magnets from the 90s? Well, this is the same thing with the hottest buzzwords harvested straight from the mouths of Menlo Park entrepreneurs. You just go in there and pluck them out. And you could recombine these buzzwords to form the elevator pitch for your next billion dollar Yahoo acquisitions. So the poems came flooding in, haikus like an Uber for drones, payable only with Bitcoin, delivering dreams, or a limerick. There once was a girl from Sand Hill Road. Oh no, wait. There wasn't a single girl from Sand Hill Road. But Peter Thiel, right? I got my magnets placed on his fridge. You'll notice the front doors, not magnetic. You can't stick anything to them. You gotta go in the side. 
In 2008, I launched a new set of AI magnets. According to Wired magazine, 78% of middle schoolers in Palo Alto have built a convolutional neural net in their spare time. 75% of those were to predict whether somebody liked them or not. The accuracy, not so great. But so, well, we all know that Silicon Valley English, there's a linguistic divide. There's a saying in Silicon Valley, solve your own problems first. Kind of like when you're on an airplane, you put your own mask on first. So this has created some problems, right? When people come here and to us in technology, they start talking about Flint, Michigan. You're like, Flint, is that an app? We need these tools to translate. We need these magnets to translate to more seamlessly communicate with Midwestern relatives at, at Thanksgiving. <laughs> so this is an example of a, of a translation. Um, we, we like to believe we have this mythology in Silicon Valley that you know the little guy, the entrepreneur, has all the, the power. That is the biggest lie of Silicon Valley. In truth, in the last 10 or 15 years, we've become commoditized. Silicon Valley as a place for misfits or hackers is long gone. It's now a place for socially awkward kids with CS degrees from Stanford and Harvard MBAs who dream of becoming PMs at Square. But the money is here to stay. We just have to accept that. The, these neighborhoods are about to become more, even more unbearable. But just as a maturing child learns self-awareness and a capacity for humor, it's my hope that as our cities grow up, we'll also gain that self-awareness. Freud called humor a triumph over narcissism. And with these magnets, it's also my hope that we'll be able to achieve that triumph. We like to think of our algorithms and our translations as somehow neutral, but in fact, they're codified opinion. Humor is not just a sign of a maturing culture, but a reminder that not all human problems can be solved with code. Thank you. Some of that cuts a little too close to home here in Seattle, I gotta say. Like, I'm laughing and laughing. I'm like, wait a second. Uh, Coco is correct that she mentioned very briefly in her excellent talk. She filled in for us. A speaker dropped out, and uh, she jumped in just, to, just this week and did a fantastic job. Can we please give a round, another round of applause for Coco? Thank you. Next up, you may have seen this gentleman walking around. He's dressed in an amazing but unusual way. He's going to tell you about his story and why he's dressed that way. Please welcome Jonathan Bell, who's going to talk about the Seattle Superman. Hi. So back in 2016, <laughs> I had a great career job. I was conductor for the railroad. I made a lot of money. I lived in a very nice place. But it wasn't something that I wanted to do with my life, and it wasn't something that I felt I was put on this earth for. But I kept doing it because, one, I made a lot of money, like I said, and two, it was comfortable, and I was comfortable living that way, even though I wasn't happy. Until one day, I almost got in a car accident, and I say almost because I did a 180 on a freeway going about seven miles an hour and miraculously did not hit anything. And that really, really woke me up. One, I could have died, and two, I thought, 
I could have been severely injured not doing what I really wanted to do with my life. So the top four things that I've always wanted to do or the things that I love the most are traveling. I love being creative, taking photos, graphic design. I also like to try to inspire people. And lastly, it's Superman. <laughs> so, so ever since I was a child, Superman has been my favorite superhero. And not because of his powers, although, I mean, I do wish I could fly, but it's more because of his ideals and beliefs. Superman treats everybody innocent until proven guilty instead of the other way around. And he also is a symbol of hope. So I had to try to figure out what, how to make those four things doing something that I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I quit my job and figured I will van life around the Pacific Northwest, taking photos in a Superman suit to try to inspire people. So, like I said, I bought a van, I put everything I wanted to keep in it, threw everything else or gave away, and drove out to Seattle. Now, I ended up here because Seattle's in the middle of Oregon and Canada, and I figured it would... <laughs> <laughs> I figured it would be a great uh, radius to start traveling around and taking photos. I knew I needed a job also, so I got the most mundane job I could think of to keep myself focused on doing what I love, so... I got a job washing dishes. Within two months, going from a loft in Fort Worth, Texas to living in a van, washing dishes every day for gas money. It's something else, but I've been doing that for a year and a half now, trying to figure out this path that I'm on, because I have hope for it. Now, speaking of hope, which is one of the reasons why I like Superman so much, just like this symbol here, hope transcends race, gender, creed, religious, political values. And anybody could be super and anyone can have hope. So also to me, hope is an action. Because it's simply not enough to just wish for something. You have to put your actions behind it to get to where you need to go. Uh, for example, you know, what if you wake up randomly one day and you have an email and say, hey, can you speak to a bunch of people and, and on stage, and you've never done it before, you want to just say to yourself, oh, I hope I could do it, and then just leave it at that. You would, you know, pull out your iPhone and record a ton of voice memos every day, practice, send them to your friends, have them, you know, get back to you. You would put in the effort and the actions and the elbow grief, grease to make your hope come alive. So with that being said, every time that you see this Superman symbol or think of Superman, I just want you to think of two things. One. <laughs> you got it. One, try to treat people innocent until proven guilty instead of the other way around. We've all had that job where our manager or boss treated us like we knew what we were doing as opposed to what we weren't doing. We've all started a relationship and had somebody trust us right off the bat as opposed to wondering when we we're going to hurt their feelings. And it feels a lot better when somebody trusts in us first off instead of believing we're going to screw up. Secondly, I would just say to keep your hope alive, whatever your ideal hope is, and remember that hope is an action. Like I said, it's not enough to just wish for something you got to put a little bit of elbow grease to make it work. Thank you.
you kind of have to let Superman go first, you know? Like, if I cut in front of Superman, that, that, that would not be good. Okay, so, our last talk of the first half, Katrina Hamilton is going to talk about getting naked for feminism. Please, a round of applause. So every young American girl learns early on in life that you're supposed to dress as a slut for Halloween. Now, this is not said to you directly, but it is in every magazine and movie, and there is no alternative that is acceptable, no opposing point of view. I never needed Halloween to show some skin in public. I always thought it was weird that I could wear my bathing suit to the beach, but nobody should see me in my underwear that covered exactly as much. To me, I, I didn't care who saw my skin. I cared who touched it. And I didn't think proximity was the same as intimacy. And I liked that it made other people uncomfortable that I behaved accordingly. But then I had this problem with Halloween. Because for one night a year, it was okay to be a slutty pirate or a slutty nurse. And it was just the flip side of fetishizing women's skin. So if I wanted to make a statement, I had to think of something that was going to feel too naked, even on Halloween. I went with Princess Leia's gold bikini from Return of the Jedi. It took me months to make this costume, but it was worth it, because it's one thing to see Carrie Fisher be mostly naked on a, in a movie, and it's another when it's that girl from your English class and you don't know if she's wearing any underwear. <laughs> so I came up with a set of rules for my Halloween costumes. Rule number one, it had to be inherently skimpy, not a sexy version of something. I wasn't making it scantily clad, I was just being accurate to what was already out there in pop culture. Which leads me to number two, it should be pretty well known. Something that people were used to seeing so they couldn't discount it. Something they were familiar with but had never questioned. And number three, since no one likes to run themselves at a party, it should be relatively difficult to replicate. Something you can't just buy off the rack. So Princess Leia was an easy choice for all three rules, as was my next costume, uh, Lilu from The Fifth Element, when she is wearing her thermal bandages at the beginning of the movie. Uh, over the years, sometimes it was hard to stick to all three rules. Uh, I was Lara Croft, she wasn't as skimpy. I was Maid Marian, which not as many people recognized. But the point and the reactions were the same. Because let's face it, I was dressing up as the symbols of my own oppression. Han Solo is imprisoned in carbonite when Princess Leia is imprisoned in a bikini. Batman gets to wear body armor while Wonder Woman wears a bustier. Uh, one of my costumes, in fact, Molotov Cocktease from the Venture Brothers, is herself a commentary on the ridiculous outfits we put our female characters in while still expecting them to backflip their way through lasers. <laughs> when it comes to a female appearance, we've trained ourselves to ignore the ridiculous. So a video game character that wears a bikini while shooting a semi-automatic, it's nothing new. It's nothing to question. But when you have to be physically next to someone who is that publicly naked, it stops being a character. And you lose the luxury of voyeurism that made you think it was okay. I've had costumes that made it difficult to see or impossible to sit, uh, where I had to tape my, the fabric directly to my body and I couldn't go to the bathroom for hours. But I am always the most comfortable person in the room. You know, people have a tough time with what I'm wearing, but they really can't stand how casually I'm wearing it. Because 
Even on Halloween, there's a limit to how comfortable you're supposed to be with your own body. Now, I love making costumes, but if that were all it were about, I wouldn't have to go out of my way to find the most absurd outfits on Earth. I do it because it is still the majority opinion that I should spend my life ashamed yet beautiful, except for the sanctioned times when I'm required to be on display and ridiculous. The famous burlesque dancer Gypsy Rose Lee once said, I wasn't naked, I was completely covered by a blue spotlight. <laughs> I'm not naked when I'm in costume. I am covered head to toe in everyone else's insecurities. I've worn a dozen costumes, and I'm only ever wearing one thing, a mirror. Now, I know there are people who think my Halloween costumes are vulgar and vain, that think I'm doing it all for male attention. Uh, I imagine some of them may even be in the audience tonight. If that's you, I imagine that every photo in this presentation made you squirm in your chair. That's a good thing. That discomfort is what teaches you that women don't belong to anyone but themselves, that I get to decide the admission fee I place on my own skin. So if you are uncomfortable, don't worry. I'm here to help. <laughs> and I will be here. <laughs> I will be here half naked and making you feel uncomfortable until you change your mind. I am not naked, I am covered in everyone else's insecurities. It was just an amazing sentence that you just heard on the stage. I can have your attention, I know you're having fun, but this is important. We have a space shuttle launch mission we're gonna do in this talk. We are trying to synchronize this talk in real time to an important world event. We've never done this before and we hope you will participate. One thing you need to do, these boxes, you're like, what's in the boxes? Is that candy, is it a bomb? What is that, what is that thing? A friendly bomb, not a dangerous bomb, friendly bomb. Please have it out on your lap in front of you. We can get to it easily because it is related to our next talk. So I am very pleased and honored to welcome and ignite alumni back to our stage, if I can find the right part of my program here. The next talk, Breaking the Ramadan Fast live on stage. Please welcome Khalud Al-Badul Latif to the stage. Disclaimer, the speaker in front, in front of you has been fasting from food, drinks, and from being a jerk since dawn. <laughs> Viewer discretion advised. People who know me know that I don't know a lot about astronomy or I have never watched any of Star Wars movies. Sorry, Seattle. Though yesterday I was curious to look up the sky and check the birth of the crescent. And yes, it was there, smiling back at, at me and saying, girl, get your act together, it's Ramadan. <laughs> it is indeed. Ramadan is the ninth month of the Muslim uh, lunar calendar. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also um, one of the sacred time of the year where, where healthy adult Muslim fast from food, drinks and um, sexual relation from dawn to dusk for, for, the, for 30 days. 
although we don't, uh, we don't fast for the whole 30 days. We break it every day. Another, another really um, interesting fact that um, Muslims usually um, go to, um, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my body is not complaining. All right, so um, what, once, one time a colleague told me, that's cool that your faith, uh, your faith has a built-in um, uh, weight loss program. <laughs> and I say, well, yeah, but you know, fasting is more, more than just losing weight. You're actually sometimes gaining weight. Uh, but it's about actually to reduce distraction from life so you can have more connections with the creator. And also to show us how it feels to be like hungry and thirsty so we feel for the less fortunate and for the needy. So Ramadan is ultimately is about, is about um, creating capacity to serve others. Sounds very serious, but really, not really. Um, it, there is a really cool tradition and fun traditions that happens all around the world, and it, it differs from a culture to another. Um, for example, in, uh, like in the majority of Muslim countries, work hours reduce to, um, to five hours a day. So people stay up late, malls and the markets are open until like after midnight, um, in another also uh, countries, like in the Gulf countries where I'm from, there, uh, there's a tradition called Gurgaan, and it happens in the middle of Ramadan where uh, kids um, roam around, they, they, they dress in traditional clothes and roam around the neighborhood and ask for candy. It's kind of like trick-or-treating but without wearing uh, Captain America, uh, whatever, costume. Um, another tradition uh, that is most, the most popular tradition is um, breaking the fast with, um, with dates. So Muslims consume a large amount of dates during Ramadan. Uh, so it's the only time of the year that you can have a date every night, unless you use tender, of course. After, um, after the 30 days of Ramadan, uh, there's, a, there's the holiday that called Eid, Eid al-Fitr, which is people come together and, um, with family and friends and celebrate and exchange, exchange gifts. I mean, sounds similar to other uh, holidays. Um, and now I'm waiting. <laughs> Because this, this actually, this tradition is also hap happens mostly in Egypt and Syria and Lebanon, whereas someone, uh, they, call, they call them the msaharati, where a person uh, goes around their neighborhood and drums to wake up uh, the people, uh, to wake them up to eat before, uh, before the sunrise. So if you're not observing Ramadan, good luck sleeping through that. <laughs> those are just, uh, those like my bad, so it's eight. <laughs> Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. It's 8.44. And it's time for me to break my fast. <laughs> it's my first day of fasting. And I, I invite all of you to open those boxes because you got dates. And you got dates. And everyone here got dates. Everyone got dates. Ramadan Mubarak.
lost. No, no, good job. No worries. I'm giving you a moment to have your date, breaking your fast. You fasted throughout most of that Ignite talk, so that's breaking your Ignite talk fast. So we actually pulled it off. We had the, that talk in real time. If you notice the top of her slides, it was counting off the time. We were in real time. And that special, weird, fun thing happened because of two of our organizers who went well above and beyond their way to make the boxes and get the dates. Zach and Tyler, can we give them a round of applause, please, for making all that happen? Part of our ambition here is to make this event special. And whenever we get an opportunity like that to do something special with you as an audience, we go for it. And if you submit a talk, you're thinking of a talk idea, and you have some special thing you'd like to do with a group of people that would work something like that, make that part of your submission, because we will try to make it happen if we can. Next up, Phoenix Cavalier is going to talk. All right. <laughs> so Phoenix's mom is clearly here. Which is great, we encourage it. We like moms, that's wonderful. So I'm gonna try that again. Hopefully I won't be interrupted this time. Uh, <laughs> you wanna go home at some point, right? So okay. Phoenix Cavalier is gonna talk about how a punching, he has two moms, how a punching bag saved my life, parenting tips from a group home kid. Welcome him to the stage. Hello. So I wanted to just say thanks for being here. I love Ignite. It's such a cool feeling to be here. Um, the reason I'm here is I signed up, and they liked the idea, and then I had to find out why am I here. So it's to talk about, well, this one. Do you have parents? You might. Here's what's funny. You could have parents and also not have parents, because some people aren't parents even though they're parents. <laughs> it's true. It's a mysterious thing. Something else is related is about feelings. I have feelings. I also used to hate feelings. I found them terribly, terribly difficult. They ruined everything. They hurt my heart all the time. I kind of thought, what the f are these about? <laughs> now, if you combine this idea that you may or may not have parents, you may literally have parents who may not have been good parents or are really good parents, and then you think about those parents and the feelings you have about them, it kind of is a little window into, well, what the word parenting means to you. I have had a lot of different parents. That sounds weird, right? Well, it's true. I had my mom. I had a dad. I didn't meet him until I was 25. I had other people. And then one day, I was sent to a group home. So what's a group home? Well, it's kind of where you go when parents don't do a very good job. You might end up driving by one, but you wouldn't know it because I was in Nevada, California on Sunnyside Lane. It was gorgeous. I wasn't quite eight. It looked like a regular place. There's a lot of kids running around, but uh, it was a group home and I hated it. I actually really hated it. You know, it was kind of like, what the f is this? These aren't my family. Who are these kids? I don't know any of them. You know, I didn't like it, I got in trouble a lot. I started to throw tantrums. It's not an old word, a tantrum, but I threw a lot of them. And the parents were weird because they would show up and then they'd be different later. And someone would smoke inside all the time. And they didn't know how to cook, really. They kind of made hot dogs and cheese 
government cheese is real. <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble, and, you know, I wasn't alone, though. There were other kids getting in trouble, you know, so no big deal. Still didn't quite understand where I was or what was really going on. Eventually, some new parents arrived. Again, this isn't really good news. They're just more new weird people showed up. So this time it was a couple. That was different instead of it being, you know, one person. Their names were Peter and Nicole, and they were from Germany. Peter had dark brown hair and really kind eyes, and Nicole had lighter brown hair and a really sweet smile and a kind voice. And they were different. It seemed like things were different because of them. They were patient. And me and the other kids kind of were curious and a little standoffish and certainly not sure we liked them. But they gave us jobs to do in the house and they created this sense that we were doing things together. Sweeping, setting the table, that was my job. Or just making sure that things were going all right and doing the dishes. It was Peter who taught me how to hang up a towel. That's very, very scientific. You take the edge, you roll it, then you put it on the hook and it won't fall off. Now when you're about eight, this is very, very amazing. <laughs> because of Peter and Nicole, something kind of happened one day that was really magical, not like Santa or getting adopted or anything. It was that I kind of had this shaking around inside like, uh, hmm, I think I'm really fucking angry. <laughs> oh my God, I'm really fucking angry. I don't like break shit. I want to like throw things, tear down walls. I don't want to like anybody. I would like to be very, very mad. It was like red. And then Peter and Nicole, they were like, that's okay. What? This is the place where I like learned all the weird things and nobody was normal. But then Peter's like, go out here in the garage. I put up a punching bag. Why? I've never even seen a punching bag. Well, he said, all of your feelings are important and if you feel angry, you can go out here and you can punch this thing all you want, anytime. And I did. I did. I punched the hell out of that fucking thing. I was so fucking angry, but then something happened and I realized I was just sad. And it was the first time I felt okay in two years. Thanks. I owe Phoenix a apology of a kind. I made a whole bunch of mom jokes before he got up on stage. And I've, I've seen him practice the talk because we do speaker coaching. So I apologize. I saw you laughing, so I knew you, it was cool. But uh, Zach, Zach pointed out, he's like, Scott, you know what you said before his talk? I was like, I was like oh. But uh, thank you, whoever cheered out. I do appreciate, like, enthusiasm for speakers is fantastic. Did not mean to make you feel bad. So, so I'm glad we're all, all is forgiven as we move forward. So next up, how to woo a Seattle walk. Maria Bola, please welcome her to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hello, Seattle. I bet you're wondering what a walk is. A walk is a woman of color. There's some walks here. Now, in order to be very effective at wooing a walk, you have to first be truthful about who you are and what you want. Now, we walks really love this. For example, if you're on Tinder or Bumble or maybe a Match.com app and you are 5'6 and you say that you're 6'11, there's no need to do that because we love you just the way that you are. We walks love it when you tell the truth. Secondly, be intentionally communicative. So the rules that apply to dessert decision-making skills also apply to soft surface skills and consent. For example, I was on a date and somebody asked me if I wanted dessert and I hemmed and hawed about it because for some reason I always do when somebody asks me if I want dessert. And I, uh, and I realized if I could just articulate whether or not I wanted dessert, secondly, what kind of dessert I wanted, and thirdly, what kind of dessert I didn't want, then what I would have is the opportunity to have excellent company, delicious dessert, as long as my partner also felt the same way and we found a mutually agreeable solution for dessert. And <laughs> thirdly, I'd have the perfect skill set to then have decision-making skills about later soft surfaces activities. <laughs> thirdly, to be a really effective walk woo wooer, if I encourage you to be as curious as possible about your walk. So, um, I also challenge you, if you are not curious about the woman of color in front of you, I wonder, are you really interested in her? Now, curiosity is a broad spectrum. On the far left, we have unassumptive curiosity, and then on the far right, we have the sort of assumptive curiosity that looks a lot like a stereotype, objectification, exotification, that sort of thing. That's not so effective at wooing a walk. Now, a wonderful, unassumptive um, example that I have is I was out on a date with somebody and they asked me a standard dating 101 question. Hey, Marie, where are you from? Excellent question, right? I love this question because one, they see that I'm brown and don't assume that I'm uh, from somewhere else. And secondly, they hear how I speak and think, oh, she could be from Seattle, but I'm not gonna assume she is. Maybe she's from somewhere else, or maybe she's from a different country. This is a wonderful example of wooing a walk because it's unassumptive. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, I've had experiences on dates where someone said, Marie, do you speak Indian? What's that, I wonder? <laughs> I've also had it where on dates, and not just on dates, but in front of, uh, at grocery stores or restaurants, someone has come up to me and said, hey, are you Indian? Do you do yoga? And dates have asked me, are you flexible? <laughs> I'm gonna let you assume as to how that's not a great line of questioning in wooing a walk. Fourthly, I asked several walks how they felt their experience being a woman of color in Seattle varies from that of white women. And one, one person articulated it particularly well for me. She said, Marie, when I'm out with men, it feels like the other box is checked for me when I'm dating. And it feels like people ask me questions. She said a, a person she was out with asked her, 
how her the, what the texture of her hair felt like, how it, uh, what kind of product she put in it, and how it smelled. And then later, um, someone asked her what her skin, they were fascinated with her skin, how it felt, and also um, they actually asked her how it got to be the color it was. So, <laughs> same as any other person's skin, right? DNA is fascinating. <laughs> so anyways, all this to say, woo wooing a woman of color, that line of questioning, not so effective. But what we do know is that um, being curious, at being intentionally um, asking intentional communication, and the first thing that I said that I can't remember right now is effective at wooing a walk. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, uh, one of my duties as MCs, as MCs to make sure that you get the optimal experience possible. So we have noticed uh, Randy Stewart is our chief of visualization, photography, etc. He's noticed that our spotlight is a little bit off. You guys have been such a great audience. We've had seismic level activity in the room and it has shifted our spotlight a little bit off. So I need to be model for a second and wait until Randy tells me that our spotlight is now recalibrated. So just give me a second here. We need like um, some kind of um, improvisational exercise. Let's see, what's the next talk? Maybe I can, I can like pre, give you a seed for the next talk while they put the spotlights on me and make me look good. Oh, I can actually start introducing the next talk. So we've been doing Ignite here in Seattle for t over 10 years. This is the 36th event. And we pride ourselves on being smart. Many of us work in management, engineering, very complicated technical roles. Randy, you give me a signal when you're ready. We're ready already. Randy is so good at this. Thank you, Town Hall, for correcting our spotlight. I look much better now, right? Five feet taller, okay. So as I was saying, we pride ourselves on really trying to make this a great experience for you. But one thing that somehow in 10 years we've never done is to actually ask you <laughs> as the audience goers who pay money to come, hey, what'd you think? So we finally did that at the last Ignite. If any of you were there at Ignite 35, how many of you were at the, you got the survey thing, you filled it out. So we read all everything that you said and took it deeply to heart. And we've made changes tonight that were inspired by feedback from you, the audience. And we like to be meta and transparent and share with you and make it a community where we're having a dialogue about what should Ignite Seattle be. So to help explain to you what we've done and why we did it, Nicole Steinbach, who's one of our organizers, and she's the person who made the survey happen, is going to come on stage and explain to you a little bit about what we've done and why. So please welcome Nicole to the stage. Thank you, Scott. As Scott mentioned, Ignite Seattle has happened 35 and a half times. And after every event, the organizers get together and have a retrospective. We talk about what went well, what didn't go well, what we're going to experiment with next time, and we eat a lot of very yummy curry. But as Scott was mentioning, we've never asked for your input into this retrospective process, except for the last Ignite when we did and we sent out a survey. Before we get to the survey results, I want to talk about a few caveats about the survey. First, the survey was self-selected. Not everyone took the survey, of course. We are not um, thinking that it's statistically significant. However, what is significant is the feedback that you spent your time in putting into this survey. And so we really, really appreciate that. So our most common Ignite audience member is a woman. 
She's in her 30s. She has a bachelor degree of something. And for her individual annual income, well, she would prefer not to say. But who cares about the average? Ignite is for everyone. We want everyone across all demographic variables to be in our audience. So if you have ideas um, to improve us including groups of people or not excluding groups of people, we want to hear that. A sausage fest is death. That was a quote I got from Brady Forrest when I was asking him, hey, why even starting at the very first Ignite was the gender ratio for speakers set at 50-50? And it was because people want to see themselves upstage. As you can see, this really impacted our um, submission percentage by women over the years. So at Ignite 6, we only had 12% women submitting. And now at Ignite 35, we have 50% women submitting. It's fantastic stuff. So half of our Ignite audience are newbies, and that is always reaffirmed by Scott's show of hands, but 20% are superfans. These are people that go to five or more Ignites. And why do we have superfans? Well, obviously, number one is the talks, but it's the variety of talks. You can hear from pirates and Superman and Princess Leia and slackers all within a 20-minute time frame. These talks, though, are, wouldn't be anything without the amazing speakers. My favorite quote from the survey about the speakers was it's just everyday people are getting up on stage and telling their story and sharing their passion. Sometimes comedy, sometimes a little bit of tears. Next audience, give yourselves a round of applause. You're the reason why people like coming to Ignite. The community we're building, the energy in the room, and the fun that everyone is having. And on number four on our list, as someone will be very familiar to you, is our MC Scott Birkin. He does a great job on stage, he does a great job with the speakers, and he does a great job behind the scenes. But let's get serious. What do people dislike about Ignite? That's what people want to know from the survey. We got tons of one-off um, feedback, my favorite being that the red pants are not for sale. If we sold the red pants, what would Scott wear? So we'll go to the more common dislikes that people had about Ignite. So the fifth one is the MC Scott Birkin. <laughs> Awkward, but this isn't about the person Scott Birkin. This is some of the specific things we had been doing. But Scott listened to that feedback and he's changed since the previous Ignite. So thank you for your actionable feedback. My favorite quote on this one for their least favorite thing, there's too many white people talking. So this is number four on our list, but it's really number one in our hearts to make Ignite more diverse for our speakers. People do not like getting pitched to. We have a no pitch rule when submitting and accepting, and we also coach this. So what we tell people is give a great Ignite talk, and then near the end, do the pitch. Hey everyone, did you know that Ignite Seattle is looking for new organizers? If so, please contact us. This slide is intentionally left blank. 10% of the participants of our survey said there was nothing they didn't like at Ignite. And we hope that continues after this at Ignited Well. The number one thing people disliked was the length. So people want to get home earlier on a work day or a school day or get to the after party. So thank you for your feedback. But we've started earlier and we have less talk so we can get to bed and or get to the party. Thank you to the 91 of you who took the Ignite survey. Thank you also for people in the audience who will be taking our next survey so we can get some feedback on how our changes went. One last request. 
We had a photo booth at our last Ignite, and these people won the um, photo booth contest, but we don't know who they are. So if you know who they are, please let us know. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, they are for sale. No one's offered me 15. Anyone do better than 15? Do I hear 20? Do I hear 20? Can I get some drink tickets back for my pants? How does this work? So it is, I have to admit, it, I've been an MC for a long time. It is very meta now after having my MC performance diagnosed from you to get back on stage and to say anything at all. All that I can really say is thank you, Nicole. That was wonderful. Our best, it was a fantastic representation of what we care about. We care about making a great show for you. So there will be a survey. If you didn't catch it, there will be a survey for all of you. And you get to comment. Tell us what else should this be? How can we make it better? How can there be more of the talks or substance that you like and care about? So we have two more talks for you before we all head over to the after party. And speaking of making Ignite a platform for everyone, one thing that everybody does is go to the bathroom, as far as I know. So <laughs> the next talk is going to be about a particular point of view about how to make the bathroom experience better. Jason Preston, a former Ignite organizer and multi-time Ignite alumni, is going to talk to you about pooing in public, a user experience guide to bathroom locks. Please welcome Jason to the stage. Thank you. So yeah, I want to talk about something that we encounter every day, but apparently nobody thinks about. And I want to start by sharing a story. So not too long ago, I went to the cafe at Third Place Books. And I ordered a caffeinated beverage. And for those of you who are like me, you already know, that means I had to go number two. So I made my way into the bowels of the cafe. And uh, I found the... <laughs> And they, I went into the bathroom, and they had this uh, door handle that, like, the velociraptors can open in Jurassic Park, if you remember, with the, the lock button on the top. And so I press the button, and it returns to the exact position it was in before I pressed it. And so now I'm not sure if it's locked. So what do I, I check it, right? And I go, Tunk. okay, it was locked. Right, okay, so now I'm going to press it again. I'm going to take it on faith. It's locked. And I go to assume my vulnerable position. I drop my pants. And like Princess Elsa, I proceed to let it go. And then somebody tries the door. And I give the universally acknowledged response, ah! <laughs> and then it happens two more times. And I'm like, okay, shit, there's a line. Like, there's two restrooms, but maybe the other one's broken, or I don't know. And so I hurry up, and I do my things, and I, I wash my hands, and I, I head out to, the, you know, to go out, and I have my excuses ready. And the strangest thing is that nobody's there. And that confuses me for a while until I realize that there's actually a sign on the outside of this restroom. And that sign says, if this door is locked, the bathroom is occupied. Which, it, to me, that might as well say, hey, see if you can cause a heart attack. <laughs> I think we have a bathroom design problem at hand here. And if you think about this experience and think about how much stress was added to my life from that experience, right? And as Scott so kindly pointed out, most of us poo. And that means that this is happening to other people around the world as well, right? And so this is actually the cause of a lot of stress in the world. And, uh, and I know you say, okay, Jason, you cherry-picked that example, right? This is not really a problem. But there are actually problematic bathroom locks all over the shitty, and I have the photos to prove it. 
And so what I would like to do is play a little game with you. I'd like to show you some photos of restrooms. And I want you to tell me if they're locked or not. So here on the left, <laughs> I have a photo of the restroom at University Village. Is it locked? What do you think? Correct, it is not locked. I got walked into. Like, that door got opened on me, because it goes, it goes like this, and then you think it's locked, and it's not. What about that one? This is from a famous restaurant, world-famous restaurant in Napa. Locked or not? You have no, it's locked, but you couldn't tell from looking at it, could you? So I have a few simple design principles that I think could alleviate a lot of the problems we have with bathroom locks, and so I want to go through them. The first design principle is that the door, the lock, should, it should be visually obvious from both the inside of the bathroom and the outside that the door is locked, right? Ob oddly, airplane bathrooms do a pretty good job of this, and I, I know that no one is trying to replicate that experience anywhere <laughs> on planet Earth, but they do have that going for them, right? The second design principle is that the lock and the handle should be separate. And if you think about it, they really do serve very different purposes. The handle is there to allow the door to open and close. And the lock is there to prevent that from happening. <laughs> the third design principle is that when you close the deadbolt, and there should be a deadbolt, you should be able to look in between that little crack where the door lines up, and you should see that there is a piece of metal between you and any potential intruder. <laughs> and the fourth design principle is that when the door is locked, if you try it from the inside, it, that should demonstrate that the door is locked. It should not unlock the door. <laughs> so, I, I know it's difficult to change these kinds of things, but I have hope because we've done it before. If you remember, we used to have grocery store signs all over the world that said 10 items or less. And through this act of monumental public shaming, we got grocery store managers to change all of those signs. They now say 10 items or fewer. <laughs> so I think the same principle could work to change our bathroom experience. So I actually have two requests of you tonight. First, I want you to share this video with your friends so they understand the gravity of the situation. And second, I want you to Instagram the shit out of this. When you go to a restroom, take a photo of the view from the throne, and label it with the hashtag locked or not, and together we can collectively improve the experience of everyone on planet Earth. Thank you. That was awesome. I hope some of you caught the, gr the gravity of the situation. Did you catch that? You didn't laugh, I was like, that's just perfect, brilliant. Okay, lovely. So, a um, couple of notes before our final, final talk of the night. So first, how many of you participated in Brian Ono's Arts Refresh thing in the corner and the stage left? A lot of you did. So we had over 70 talk submission ideas, and I want to let you know we're going to look at all of those, and we'll probably do something on, on our website at nightseattle.com to capture a lot of the creative work you guys came up with. So thank you for participating. That validated the idea of doing this thing. We'll probably do more things like it. So thank you, audience, for participating and having fun. Give yourself a round of applause as the audience. Very good. And thank you again to Brian Ono for providing all the work it took to put that little workshop and 
interactive experience together. So our last talk of the evening. So we run a really tight ship here at Ignite Seattle, and some of the organizers are going to start laughing when I say that. But really, we do. And Ignite Seattle has become a well-polished machine for creating these evenings and making them run really smoothly. This Ignite, we've had a lot of problems with speakers dropping out more than usual. And so uh, Coco, who spoke early, she, she jumped in and helped us out. Our last speaker also has jumped in to help us out, and she is going to do something we've never done on the stage before. So I mentioned, hey, Kinsey. Kinsey has her mom here as well. Or maybe that was her dad. I don't know. A family member, a friend of some kind. That's awesome. <laughs> Glad that you're here. <laughs> so never happened before. Uh, Ignite's hard. Public speaking is hard enough. Ignite makes it harder. Doing an Ignite talk to slides that you have never seen before probably qualifies as extra, like 4.5 level of difficulty. And that's what Kinsey is going to do. So the title of her talk is, I am a very brave person, and you should appreciate what I'm about to do. So she's going to come up on the stage, talk to you a little bit, and then her Ignite talk will start. So welcome Kinsey to the stage. Thank you, Ignite Seattle. Um, uh, my name is Kinsey Shaw from Unexpected Productions, which is a comedy theater, so it's gonna be funny tonight, okay? Or it's gonna try. Uh, so to get this Ignite uh, started, I need to know what to talk about. <laughs> so um, I'm going to come to you all, and you are gonna tell me what my talk's gonna be. Uh, so it could be anything from a toast, a family reunion, if you want me to try to decode the last episode of Westworld, or Vanderpump Rules, or something like that. I, I will talk about whatever you want, a, a childhood stories you want to know about me. Uh, so I can see some of you, so if you want to raise your hand, if you are brave enough, I saw one brave soul right there. Bitcoin. Bitcoin? Really? <laughs> okay. Okay. This is going to be Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Bitcoin, what is it? No one knows except for me, and I'm going to tell you exactly what it is right now. The next slide will show you a nice summary of what Bitcoin means to Seattle. <laughs> is it a treat? Sometimes. Other times, it's a dip. And you know what happens when we have dips. <laughs> Seattle goes to the special corner. It's not a bad idea. Bitcoin is so essential to our everyday lives. It is, is as essential as Tom Cruise and hot dogs, neither which I could live without. Bitcoin makes it possible for the impossible. And what's impossible? Venn diagrams. <laughs> Venn diagrams are almost impossible to decipher. That's the same color as this, I think. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin on an emotional level, fulfills me much like a tuna melt from Subway. It's something at the time I really love, but afterwards, I kind of regret. 
and it's better hot. But when Bitcoin is good, it's great. It's great as a Pacific Northwest summer day, looking out onto the Puget Sound. But it's not always like that. Sometimes. It's turmoil. It's unexpected. We can't, we can't even begin to harness Bitcoin. Just no sooner could we harness Bitcoin than we could harness the ocean. You know what's waiting for you underneath those waves? Danger. So please, in, in, when you're in trying to invest in Bitcoin, because it's very easy to do, it's so easy, sometimes it makes you feel like you have no resources at your disposal. Like you are just floating amidst a space suit. And then sometimes you feel like you're part of a family, an electronic family, one that can't be bought or sold, but sometimes can be bought and sold. Sometimes you celebrate when those family members are bought and sold. Sometimes you ride those family members. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, the one unfortunate thing about Bitcoin is that it's so misunderstood. It has feelings just like you and I. We have all thought about, if you cut a Bitcoin, does it not bleed? <laughs> I thought about it, I know you have. Treat Bitcoin like you would want someone to treat you. Exactly. Lay open all of your insecurities, your vulnerabilities. Cut yourself free. Lay everything out on the table. But sometimes, yes and. Yes and. When you do become vulnerable, sometimes you can be crushed. But it's worth it. It's worth it because at the end of the day, you have Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has you. That would be a cool sticker. I'd get high as shit and look at that for an hour. Sorry, that's the Bitcoin talking. If, if Bitcoin gave you a choice between hot dog and NyQuil, you say, Bitcoin, I'm gonna take both because carpe Bitcoin. You know what happens when you have a lot of trauma mentally? Bitcoin. Thank you. Great job. I was a little worried when the Bitcoin suggestion came up, and then she did such a great job with that. All the people who I know are, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, I'm going to send them that video every time I see that word. So, thank you all for coming tonight. You've been a great audience. Thank you very much. I have three things. 
three things to ask of you. Uh, first, can I have all the speakers, if you spoke tonight on stage, stand up, please. Please give them a round of applause. Thank you all. Stay standing, stay, stay standing, stay standing. If you were an organizer or volunteer, please stand up tonight. Stand up, up in the front. We have a bunch of people. It takes a lot of people to make this work. So my last note for you, again, we are all volunteers. You had fun tonight and you think you have some skill, you wanna make this keep going, volunteer, go to the volunteer site. We'll talk to you if you're writer, developer, designer, whatever skill you have, we can find a way to make use of you have time. We need sponsors and money. Also helpful to us to keep this going and make it better. And to help you think about that and convince you and charm you, please come to our after party. It's two blocks away. Chat with the speakers. Talk to me, talk to the organizers. Tell us about what you thought and why you had fun tonight or how we can make it better. I hope to see you there. If I don't see you there, have a great weekend and a great evening. Thank you, good night.